This podcast is brought to you by Proton Dealership IT, the cybersecurity and IT experts committed to keeping your dealership safe from cyber attacks. To learn more about how to better protect your dealership, go to info.protontex.com slash fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, October 16th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit, in for Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Unifor workers overwhelmingly approve a contract with GM Canada. Ford will idle a shift at the plant that builds the F-150 Lightning. And Polestar looks to raise some serious cash. Plus, a labor expert talks about why union membership might be in its most powerful position in decades. The economic landscape has clearly shifted and workers have a window of opportunity to make giant leaps forward that were simply not available to them previously. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Unifor members voted over the weekend to ratify a tentative agreement with General Motors Canada. The union secured that deal last week after a 12-hour strike. About 4,300 members in Oshawa, St. Catharines, and Woodstock, Ontario voted more than 80% in favor of the contract. Among other gains for workers, it promises pay increases of nearly 20% for longtime workers over the three-year term, a compression of the wage progression grid, and bonuses of $10,000 Canadian, about $7,300 in U.S. dollars, for full-timers. Union President Lana Payne said the deal offers, quote, life-changing improvements for members. Fitting with Unifor's pattern bargaining strategy, the GM deal closely tracks with the union's agreement with Ford of Canada last month. Now that three-year deals with Ford and GM are locked in, Unifor is expected to turn its attention to reopening bargaining with Stellantis in the coming days. Ford Executive Chair Bill Ford is imploring UAW leaders to end their month-long strike before it further hurts the economy and cripples the automaker's ability to compete against the likes of Tesla and Toyota. Ford spoke from the company's historic Rouge complex in Dearborn, Michigan this morning. He said the industry was at a crossroads during this round of contract negotiations. Choosing the right path isn't just about Ford's future and our ability to, to compete. This is about the future of the American automobile industry. The UAW leaders have called us the enemy in these negotiations, but I will never consider our employees as enemies. This should not be Ford versus the UAW. It should be Ford and the UAW versus Toyota, Honda, Tesla, and all the Chinese companies that want to enter our home market. Ford said he purposely had not discussed the negotiations publicly until now, but wanted to speak up because of his perspective. He's been part of every set of UAW contract talks since 1982, a few years after he joined the company. He says he's the most pro-union leader in the industry. The union last week abruptly escalated the strike to Ford Motor's largest and most profitable plant, Kentucky Truck in Louisville, and signaled a new phase of the talks with more unpredictability. Meanwhile, Ford Motor will temporarily cut one of three shifts at the Michigan plant that builds the electric F-150 Lightning pickup. The automaker cites multiple constraints, including supply chain issues. 
Ford said the cuts are unrelated to the UAW strike. It said the move takes effect today and would affect about 700 jobs. The automaker said it will rotate the shift that is being idled and did not say how long the production cut would last. Ford said it was, quote, working through processing and delivering vehicles held for quality checks after restarting production in August. And Polestar is taking steps to raise more capital as the electric car maker struggles with an increasingly strained balance sheet and continued cash burn. The company may seek to raise as much as a billion dollars. That's according to a filing last week with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The move would allow Polestar to sell different types of shares gradually over a period of time. The EV startup has been struggling to gain market share due to software delays and competition from Tesla and Chinese manufacturers that are selling battery-powered models at lower prices. Polestar lost more than $300 million in the second quarter. It said in August that it's funded through the end of the year and is working on options for the period after that. Its shares have dropped sharply this year amid worries over meeting deliveries. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, so Ford, GM down in uh, Canada in terms of the uh, Unifor bargaining there. What about Stellantis? What should we expect as uh, they go to their third and final of the Detroit Three uh, to get a, a deal worked out? You know, this is a new territory because Stellantis did not exist the last time uh, Unifor or the UAW were negotiating contracts with the Detroit Three. So you've got a you know a new CEO, a company that's uh, you know French and American rather than Italian and American with uh, FCA. So it's you know. A little bit different dynamic, but we certainly saw, you know, very cordial professional relationships uh, between Unifor and Stellantis, you know, heading into the talks. Uh, the pattern should be pretty well set, so it, it ought to be a pretty easy deal to uh, finish off, but we'll see how it plays out. Always a little bit iffy in this round of negotiations uh, this year to make any bold predictions. Take nothing for granted. Yep. Coming up, we'll hear from a labor expert about how the UAW and Unifor are benefiting from and accelerating momentum for the labor movement on both sides of the border. That's next on Daily Drive. Email phishing happens every day. Cyber criminals are out to trick your employees and coworkers into handing over valuable information that can compromise your dealership through impersonations, fake giveaways, and urgent emergency requests. All it takes is one click to shut down everything. Phishing is the leading cybersecurity concern for dealerships. Without the proper training and protection, your business is left vulnerable to ever-evolving attacks. One day you click an email, and the next thing you know, you get a call from your IT guy. Your email has been compromised. Shut down immediately. Stories of attacks and their consequences come flooding in every day. And all it takes is one click to shut down your dealership. You have enough to worry about as it is. Don't add getting hacked to the list. Let Proton Dealership IT help ensure you are fully protected and learn how at info.protontext.com fish. That's I-N-F-O P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moral peril. 
but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy. No more excuses. No more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. UAW President Sean Fain has gained arguably a celebrity status over the course of this round of negotiations with the Detroit Three. Brock University labor professor Larry Savage says it's an element of these talks that we haven't seen in a very long time. Savage spoke with Greg Lason of our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada, on the most recent episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. They spoke before Uniform members overwhelmingly ratified a contract with General Motors. Let me start by asking you this. How would you describe these contract talks on both sides of the border? Fascinating and uh, (laughs) unprecedented and multi-layered. You know, the UAW Unifor drama, the Sean Fain drama, the Cassidy Payne drama. I mean, there's... uh, They could have an HBO miniseries after this is all done. I agree. And I've said all along that the influence of United Auto Workers president Sean Fain in the social media era has permeated the rank and file of Unifor in Canada. Would you agree with that? Sean Fain has sort of risen to the level of celebrity status over the course of these negotiations. Uh, And his influence has uh, spilled over north of the border. There's no question about it. I I think that in the Ford tentative agreement, the 54% ratification vote kind of screamed out for an explanation, given that the tentative agreement was one of, if not the best deal the union had ever achieved for its members. And so that that begs the question, why why did 46% of members vote against it. And I think part of the answer lies in the fact that Sean Fain and the UAW really raised auto workers' expectations on both sides of the border. And without getting into a nuts and bolts comparison, because of course there are these are different contracts, different histories, I think that there was a perception amongst Canadian auto workers that uh, the UAW was holding out for more. Sean was asking for a 46% raise and four-day work week right out of the gate. Were his expectations fair? Were they attainable? These seem like impossible demands to be met, yet it also seems like that's what membership continues to cling to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Fain himself, you know, acknowledged that the demands were audacious. Mm-hmm. But the one thing you can't deny is that they're resonating with people and not just with UAW members like 
public opinion in the United States is with the UAW. And I think that part of this is a recognition of the fact that with within the UAW, people see this as a golden opportunity to catch up after years of concession bargaining and belt tightening. But the other part of it, I think that spills beyond the UAW, is that coming out of the pandemic, that workers more generally are fed up and they're in more of a mood to fight back. And the UAW, in the way that it has framed its fight with uh, the D3, the strike strategy that has pursued with the D3, I think is very clearly energizing the base in a way that we haven't seen for quite some time. Have workers ever been in a more powerful bargaining position? I don't know if I'd be bold enough to say that in all of history, but certainly um, since the turn of the century, I think workers have more bargaining power than we've seen. Uh, Let me say it this way. The Mm. landscape has clearly shifted. The economic landscape has clearly shifted and workers have a window of opportunity to make giant leaps forward that were simply not available to them previously. And part of this is reactive, like it's catching up to issues like persistently high inflation. But of course, it's also a response to sky high profits at the D3, right? Without those sky high profits, you wouldn't be seeing these bargaining demands. And I think it also speaks to Fain as a particular kind of leader and the frame that he's sort of uh, leaning into, that this is a a fight not just against the D3, but against the billionaire class, like a very Bernie Sanders populist approach to collective bargaining. That, again, it's like he got the president at a UAW picket line. (laughs) No one had that on their bingo card at the start of negotiations. Sean Fain seems to have pushed all the right buttons to get his membership and the general public, to some extent, as you mentioned, engaged and on his side. Is he one of the better labor leaders we've ever seen? I mean, he's tapping into a broader class resentment that is um, that is definitely helping his cause. And, uh, of course, here's the thing, though. The proof will be in the pudding, right? Right. Uh, it's difficult to assess how successful the UAW strategy is without seeing tentative contracts or ratified contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'd reserve judgment on that because I'm sure there will be lots of people after these rounds of bargaining are over that will compare and contrast what happened north of the border to what happened south of the border to determine you know, what was the most fruitful path for auto workers? All right, let's talk about this side of the border. The Ford deal includes arguably the biggest raise in history, 15% over three years, the biggest signing bonus ever at $10,000, the return of the cost of living allowance, something that would be new to anyone hired after about 2008. And yet here we are with Unifor members in Windsor being led by Unifor local 444 president and Stellantis Bargaining Committee member Dave Cassidy threatening to vote down their contract when it's their turn to negotiate later this month, even if GM members ratify the same deal the way Ford members did. Did you expect this 
to be the end of pattern bargaining? Or maybe how close are we to seeing the end of pattern bargaining? Well, we, we haven't seen anything quite like this. And I do wonder how much of it has to do with Dave Cassidy as an individual versus the what's happening more broadly. Yeah, I, I think people need to keep in mind that you know, Cassidy ran against Payne for the presidency of the union last year. Yep. Um, that's sort of, I don't know how relevant that is, but I think it sort of adds color to the intrigue. Let's put it that way. Um, but as the union skilled trades chair and the president of local 444, he has an established power base in the union that absolutely has the capacity to tank a tentative agreement at Stellantis. Um, and of course, as you know, he's made no secret of the fact that he wants to see uh, a, a better contract. But um, I, I don't think there is any scenario in which the bargaining team would knowingly bring a contract to the membership that it knew had no chance of success. And that means there will be um, increased pressure on Payne and Cassidy to iron out their differences in advance of reaching any tentative deal with Stellantis. Now, what does that look like? That is the million dollar question <laughs> because I, maybe, you know, it's, I don't know exactly what Cassidy wants the National Union's not going to bring a tentative agreement to Stellantis and have a showdown with Dave Cassidy without kind of being confident about a particular outcome. And so I'll be very interested to see what is happening in the, the back rooms. But there's no question this is a big problem for pain because Cassidy, as you know, has a reputation as a populist. Yep. who puts his own local first. Um, and he has his own power base. He has uh, he has, certainly has the capacity to tank a tentative agreement uh, that doesn't have his approval. And that has got to be keeping the leadership of the National Union awake at night. Not long after Cassidy made his not-so-veiled threats to break the pattern, Uniform President Lana Payne made a YouTube video addressing the importance and power of pattern bargaining. What do you make of that move? The, the National Union, I think, is being very deliberate uh, to do some member education around <laughs> pattern bargaining, its importance historically. Uh, and of course, um, I think Payne is right that historically pattern bargaining was used to ensure the D3 couldn't pit workers against one another as part of a a race to the bottom yep. and that it's clearly true that pattern bargaining has helped preserve relatively higher wages in the automotive sector, but the landscape is shifting. And I think some segments of the union see an opportunity to break the pattern to the benefit of workers, right? This is not the way the union or the D3 ever thought of pattern bargaining. Because, of course, the D3 has always wanted to break pattern bargaining, but yeah. not to the benefit of workers. Yeah. And, um, you know, pattern bargaining basically lets the other members of the D3 know what is the price for labor peace. 
Dave Cassidy has enough members in Windsor, roughly 4,500, where if enough vote no, a contract doesn't fly, does it? That, that's right. I don't think that you saw him mobilizing people to vote against the Ford deal. But, you know, if you're following Local 444 on social media, if you've been watching these uh, the news coming out of Windsor, there's no question that they are organizing to to break the pattern. Larry Savage is a professor of labor at Brock University. He spoke with Greg Lason on the Automotive News Canada podcast. You can hear that and more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer in for Kellen Walker. Thanks to our own Michael Martinez for his reporting for today's podcast. We also had reporting from David Kennedy of our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada. You can get the latest news on labor negotiations with the Detroit Three, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Tom Donnelly, CEO of Mazda North America. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.